0: to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low. Because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved." Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen Slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they look like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: friends. Probably would help if I turned my mic on. There we go. Well, welcome to the first week following Easter Sunday. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I've been saying that over and over to myself this week. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Because it's such a good reminder that no matter what comes up in the course of a day or a week, good or bad, Jesus is alive. right? Which means that All is well, and all will be well, because life can come from death, and even the worst things can be turned into the best things. Amen. Well, we spent the season of Lent uh, leading up to Easter at the dining room table with Jesus, looking at all of the meal stories that we find in the Gospel of Luke. And now we're going to spend some time, these next five weeks of our Easter season, with Jesus' brother James. And as we heard in our reading from Chris, he says, if any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously. So let's start by going to God in prayer. Lord, you are the giver of wisdom, and we are ever in need. We thank you for the gift of your Son, who is the Word made flesh, and for all the things he's taught us and the ways he's revealed you to us, so that we might know you and love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Open all that we are to your word this morning and to the wisdom that comes from a life of steadfastly following you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, who is James? And why have we chosen to take a look at his letter this season? Well, you may be aware there are multiple James that are mentioned in the New Testament, including two who were 12, uh, of the 12 disciples of Jesus. But it has been more or less acknowledged since the first centuries of the early church that the James who is the author of this letter that we find toward the end of the New Testament is the biological brother of Jesus, or half-brother, I should say, of Jesus, Surprisingly, he doesn't say this at the start of his letter. He just says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the simplicity and the matter-of-factness of that introduction almost seem to take for granted the fact that people already know who he is. Like His authority to teach is assumed in, in this because his, the folks that he is writing to knows that he grew up with Jesus. I mean, they lived in the same home and they ate the same meals and they heard the same stories in the synagogue and from their parents and around the dinner table. He knows Jesus intimately. And then when Jesus was going about his ministry in Galilee, James would have either seen much of this firsthand or at least heard about what was going on. And at the time, he would have heard about it with a lot of skepticism and probably embarrassment because he thought that his brother was crazy right, or at least like sacrilegious for claiming to be this Messiah, like he saw him when he was a child, you know, how could someone like that grow up and say they're now the Messiah, but after Jesus died and then he rose, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James and his eyes were opened and he was able to look at Jesus who is resurrected in all of his glory, and finally he saw him not just as his older brother, but as the one who was and is the Son of God. And it changed his life forever. So from that point on, he became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he made it his life's mission to nurture this early church and to reach out to his Jewish brothers and sisters and share with them that their Messiah had shown up. So this is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses those two titles now knowing that there's no conflict between the two. What's true of God is also true of Jesus. And then he addresses his letter that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And just to set up the context for us a little bit, these 12 tribes is a common term for the people of Israel. And so these are communities of Jews who were presumably believers who had been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire in the area, um, either from the time of the original exile a couple hundred years earlier, or because Christians started to be persecuted in and around Jerusalem in the first century. And so we have this group of folks who has scattered into the distance, and James is writing to them. And before we move into the rest of the letter, I want us to see the significance of this introduction because his Jewish readers would have recognized this immediately. Uh, The name that we translate in English as James is Jacobos, which is the Greek term for the Hebrew name Jacob. And Jacob, if you remember, was the father of the original 12 tribes of Israel. And many of the Jewish prophets around the time of this exile and this original scattering, they had foretold that one day God would bring Jacob back and that he would gather the 12 tribes that were scattered and call them home under, or into a new kingdom and under one king once again. And so by writing as Jacob to the 12 tribes of Israel, James is implying or assuring them that this time of the new kingdom, the one that they've been waiting for, has finally come, and their new king is none other than his own brother, Jesus of Nazareth. So you can bet that got their attention. (laughs) But we have this community of believers scattered, uprooted from their covenant home, feeling the tension of living as a religious minority in these various places, and trying to work out what it means that they're now part of this new kingdom that's focused not on a place, but on a person. They're in what uh, our business world today calls a VUCA environment. Are any of you familiar with this term? I just learned it this week. A VUCA environment. VUCA is an acronym that stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So this is the type of environment where things are unpredictable, right? They're a little disorienting. You don't know what's going to happen next. And this is the context for James readers. They're tucked away in these small communities, away from home, living in the midst of a really volatile environment with these big new revelations about Jesus as their Messiah, and they need to navigate what all of this means for their everyday life. And James's response is to send them these small pieces of practical wisdom. When I mean, we heard it in our reading this morning, he sort of jumps almost sporadically from one thing to another, right? Trials, endurance, wisdom, poverty, temptation, meekness, religion, back and forth. Almost like we're reading a series of Proverbs. Why? Why does James write like this? Why in the midst of all of this big-picture change in this VUCA sort of environment does James focus in on these small pieces of practical wisdom? Well, what do you do when you're in that kind of environment? I mean, think about your work life or your family life or even on a larger scale, our, our political state or our environmental crisis or going through a global pandemic or even what it's like to be a religious minority here in Utah. You know, I think this is a reality that we can kind of take for granted in our own context, too. We can relate to this experience of volatility. And when we feel like a small fish in a big pond, it's really easy to lose ourselves amidst everything that's going on around us. And it can be challenging to know how to work out those next steps. And so when we don't have all the answers, sometimes all we can do is the next right thing over and over and over, right? What is the next best practical step that I can take to navigate this day or this relationship or this project or this season of life? Uh, Anne Lamott, if you've heard of her, she's a, a Christian writer whom I love, uh, but she had a really rocky start to her faith. Uh, She was raised in an atheist household in San Francisco. She dealt with a lot of substance abuse and then she became a single mother. And in her biography, which she calls Traveling Mercies, she describes her faith story like this. My coming to faith did not start with a leap, but rather with a series of staggers from what seemed like one safe place to another. Like lily pads, round and green, these places summoned and then held me up while I grew. Each prepared me for the next leaf on which I would land. And in this way, I moved across the swamp of doubt and fear. Right? Step by step, lily pad by lily pad. This, I think, is what James is trying to get at. That faith isn't just about knowing and believing all the right things, but it's about taking the next right steps day after day. This is how we grow and how we live out what it means to be the people of God, to have consistency and integrity in our faith, no matter what else is going on around us. So what is this practical wisdom that James wants to share with us? I mean, you may have heard there's a lot to unpack in this first chapter, right? And we are not gonna be able to get into the weeds on all of it, but uh, we're actually gonna just take it in kind of a James-like fashion and spend a few brief moments with each of these different sections that he gives us, each of these chunks of wisdom and teaching. But I would encourage you as we listen and as we move through the chapter to just sort of tune in and listen to anything that strikes you this morning that maybe has to do with your next right step and come back to it throughout the week and spend some more time with it. Uh, But the first thing that James talks about after he gives this greeting is facing trials, meaning that he's very aware of the reality of his audience. Being scattered, as we mentioned, and in some cases persecuted, means trying to navigate a world that's largely outside of your control, this VUCA-type environment that we mentioned and notice he doesn't say, if you face trials, he says, whenever you face trials, because they do happen, and they will happen. But then he says, consider it all joy. <laughs> really, James? <laughs> I mean, what about my illness? Or what about my divorce? Or what about my child who's dealing with depression? What about this coworker that I just can't seem to get along with who's making my life miserable? Are those sorts of things supposed to bring me joy? I think we can misread James here if we hear him saying that these trials in and of themselves are joyful. They are not. (laughs) But his point is not about the trials themselves. It's about what God is able to do through them. It says, consider it joy because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance complete its work so that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. This is what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. God is forming us through our circumstances and through our trials, step by step, into the character of Christ. Christ. It's a lifelong journey. But what if we don't know what to do about our trials? What if we don't know what the next right step is? James invites us simply to ask. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to you. James is echoing the wisdom of his own teachers here, which we're going to hear a lot in the course of the book. In the book of Proverbs, King Solomon once wrote, if you indeed cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And in the same way in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. I wonder if sometimes we hold back from asking things of God because we're afraid that he won't respond. And sometimes it feels like he doesn't. But the surest way to, to miss out on God's wisdom is never to ask for it. And so this is why James invites us to ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And I actually prefer uh, the New Living Translation here, and, and they put it like this, when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as the wave of the sea. I think to say do not doubt sends a wrong message because doubt is an integral part of our life of faith. Asking questions, wrestling with things, those are good. James isn't telling us never to ask questions, but he is saying to not be double-minded in our loyalty to both God and the world. Clearly, for James, one of these sources of wisdom is more trustworthy and far more stable than the other. Lean single-mindedly into the wisdom of God, he says. And then he pivots, and he gives us a contrast of the rich and the poor. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. This one might feel like a bit of a gut punch for us. So on the whole, I think as a congregation even, we are, we are a church with means, right? And as Americans, we live well above the financial level of most folks in this world, even some of our neighbors in this city. In life and with material comforts, by the world's definition of success, most of us are doing pretty okay. But at the end of the day, our wealth doesn't go with us. And God's blessing, as we've seen so often with Jesus, shows up for the poor and the ones who are lower in social status. James is pretty clear that God's interest is in reversing our social hierarchies and the ways that we define success. And if you think about who he grew up with, this is not exactly surprising, right? In the first chapter of Luke, when she was pregnant, Mary once sang, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. This is what James and Jesus have been taught their whole life. And Jesus mirrors this as well when he said, Many who are the first will be last, and the last will be first. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Tend to where your heart is and where your loyalties lie, James says. One commentator writes, just as those without faith will not receive wisdom, so here those who are rich will be brought low. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Judgment comes on those who place their trust not in God, but in the quantifiable treasures of earthly life. His next statement is blessing. Blessing for the one who endures temptation. And again, we see this theme of endurance and consistency coming out of the book of James. He knows that life is not an easy road. And anyone who's in recovery from addiction will tell you that the battle with temptation is often literally moment by moment and step by step and day by day. Perhaps you've had this experience or you know someone with this experience. But in the end, it's those small steps and being able to take those small moves forward that make up our whole life. And you can almost imagine Jesus walking beside us in those times of temptation, not just to things like substances, but with uh, lust, anger, dishonesty, the temptation to be prideful, Whatever the case may be, Jesus walks beside us and says, I'm here with you. I will always be here with you. We can take this step by step together. And I promise there is a crown of life waiting for you at the end of this journey. According to James, God is never the one who tempts us. But he is the generous giver of every good thing. Every good thing. And he will always be the one to whisper truth and love to us when we need that encouragement to take the next right step. And then James reminds us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not produce God's righteousness. And I feel like I know this in my own life. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I spout off because I'm angry, I immediately regret it, just about every time. (laughs) And I do it more often than I care to admit. And I think it's because that feeling of, like, anger and that righteous anger, it just makes me feel like I'm more in control. But in reality, it's the opposite, right? Anger gets the best of us. It's reactive, not responsive. I end up doing more harm than good because it's not the patient and gracious way of Jesus. And so this is why James invites us to welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. And I love this image of the implanted word. It might be my favorite metaphor that James uses in this chapter because he's saying that it's not just about hearing and understanding the word. It's about allowing it to become so implanted in us that it actually bears fruit in the way that we live. When we let God's wisdom carve through all of the chaos of our surroundings, all of our fears and anxieties and our busyness or whatever it is, and it let it sink deeply into our soul, it becomes so rooted in us that the fruit of the Spirit begins to spill out despite the worst in us. It's what allows us to be patient instead of angry, and gracious instead of judgmental, and hopeful instead of despairing. You know, the implanted word produces good fruit in us that's not of ourselves, but is still there for us as we need it. The Psalms tell us that those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it are like trees planted by streams of water Which yield their fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, in whatever they do, they prosper. And this is why James can tell his readers then to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. It's the same as Jesus saying, You will know them by their fruits. Whatever's planted in us will bear its fruit in season. And James gets a lot of criticism for this. Uh, for his focus on doing the word as much as hearing the word, because it almost makes it sound as though we have to prove ourselves to God, right? And as if our work is, or our worth is demonstrated in what we do. Some people even think that James is trying to contradict Paul here, because Paul said that it's our faith in Jesus that saves us and not our works. But I don't believe that that's the point that James is making. He's not trying to contradict the idea that we are saved by faith. He knows where our salvation comes from. But he also knows that if we say we have faith, but we don't actually live it out, what good is it? It's like we heard getting advice from a doctor and and not following it. (laughs) It's not going to help us. What difference will it make to us or to anyone else If we come and we hear the word and we receive it and we say we have faith, but it doesn't actually bear fruit, was it really there to begin with? Or do we need to let it sink a little deeper? He ends this passage by making this bold claim that religion that doesn't bridle its tongue and deceives its heart is worthless. Instead, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And it's interesting, for a letter that is written to the early church, James doesn't actually reference Jesus a lot, but every small piece of wisdom that he gives in this chapter and throughout the rest of his letter is directly in line with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' teaching is directly in line with the wisdom of the Jewish scriptures. James is tying it all together for us, because in the end, all of the wisdom in this chapter that he offers to us is a practical application of the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, not with double-mindedness or anger, but with endurance and faith, And love your neighbor as yourself. Honor the ones who are poor. Take care of the orphan and the widow. In other words, do what the people of God have always done. Seek God's wisdom. Plant it in your soul. And let it produce love in your life. Because it will. I know we've covered... A lot this morning. (laughs) James has a lot of good stuff to say and we're going to keep diving into it as we continue in this series. But I hope that you at least heard something in his words from this week that you can take with you. It's not going to make your environment less messy or less volatile. It definitely won't show you the whole road ahead, but it might be enough to help you navigate that next right step. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for offering us your wisdom, which is so much greater than ours. Thank you for committing to walk alongside us as we take this journey of our lives step by step with you and with one another. Pray that you would not only give us wisdom, but the courage to take whatever step forward you're calling us to today in whatever way that you need us to live out our faith, to show your love to the people around us, to practice patience when we feel anger, whatever it is, Lord, to endure those trials and temptations, to take care of the orphan and the widow. Put in us the mind of Christ. Show us your heart. Invite us to walk with you, step by step, We thank you for your goodness, for every good gift that you give us, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.